This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this week's episode of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, we're actually in Columbia, Maryland at Sapwood Cellars, and sitting across from me are Mike Tonsmere and Scott Janish from Sapwood Cellars, um, both accomplished authors in their own rights. Uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. Yeah, thank, thanks for having us. Big fan of, of the, the podcast, so pumped to do this. Yeah, thanks for uh, showing up and uh, doing all the hard work. Hey, hey, uh, we're actually filming classes here for our all access video program. And so subscribers, all access subscribers to the Craft Beer Brewing video uh, program will get to watch all of these at their leisure. We appreciate both of you all doing that. Of course, uh, Mike wrote the, the book uh, American Sour Beers. Scott wrote the book uh, The New IPA. Uh, it's very rare that we find two brewery partners who have launched a brewery together who are both uh, accomplished authors in completely separate subjects in the brewing world. Uh, and so it makes for a nice kind of synthesis here at Sapwood Cellars. We're going to talk about both of those things. We're going to talk about uh, making expressive hoppy beers. We're going to talk about getting all of that hop flavor that you can out of those beers. And we're also going to talk about the ways that you blend both of these uh, uh, in, uh, drives within the brewery, uh, blending hops with acidic beer. We're going to also talk about uh, making quality American wild ales in this day and age. We're going to do all of that. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, GD Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. GD's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipes and make a non alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor? color or beer quality and a no problem the alchemator from pro brew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from beer without sacrificing all of the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great are you ready to brew like a pro check out www.probrew.com to learn more about the alchemator from pro brew or shoot them an email at contactus at probrew.com today. Probrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a ProMock brand. And I guess we should say we're sitting right next to the operating brewery, and there's definitely some brewery sounds in the background, and we are just going to fucking roll with it because uh, <laughs> as we are here in person. Anyway, um, Scott, why don't you give me some of your background and uh, you know, of, let's follow this, uh, this arc and path that led you to... Uh, to then launching a brewery with uh, Mike as a partner here. Yeah, of course. Um, my brewing kind of history is is not uh, super uh, unique in that it was just uh, you know one of those gift uh, homebrew kits that just kind of got out of control after that. Never um, heard that story yeah, before. Exactly. Um, but my uh, personal history, I actually uh, am from South Dakota originally and moved out to um, D.C. to work in politics at the time. Um, the senator from South Dakota, and then. Um, did uh, consumer fin financial protection lobbying for a little over a decade. So um, the history or my, my actual experience has nothing to do with beer. Um, 
Um, Mike's is uh, somewhat somewhat similar in in, in how we are you know, you know our, our day jobs uh, you know back in the day. Which... I would never have guessed <laughs> that you both wonks some some way <laughs> here in the DC area. I would never would have guessed. Honestly, it feels like a lifetime ago too. I mean, it's only we just had our four year anniversary, but it, it does you know sitting at a, at the desk at the day job feels like a long time ago. Um, um, but it's been a great change. Um, Mike and I were just you know became good friends through uh, the. DC homebrewing uh, group and um, did a bunch of tastings and, and things like that together. And, um, and both, know. both being bloggers, I think we'd talked a little bit maybe online, even before we'd met about, uh, I, I was doing some stuff with hops on a, a spreadsheet and Scott turned it into sort of a little web applet where you could blend different varieties to get the oil profile of another yeah. variety or something like that. Yeah. So there was a, there was a mutual uh, respect there, I think. And, um, you know, we, and the, the story kind of goes, we just kind of had a couple couple beers and Mike was, I, I was personally looking at um, starting a brewery for a couple of years and got uh, somewhat close uh, to, to getting a space and, and going through with it, but ultimately decided, you know, I don't think this is something I can do on my own. Um, and so kind of put it on the, the back burner. And then when Mike uh, suggested, you know, well, if you ever want to consider opening a brewery together, maybe, we, you know, something we could do. Um, and, and so it's like, funny, you should ask, uh, <laughs> um, and, and honestly the, the two, um, you know, we're both very much involved in the, um, hop side and, and sour side, but just having that, um, confidence in someone else too, made it a lot easier of a decision. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll sort of echo Scott's story. I, uh, I maybe had a little, uh, less conventional route to homebrewing. I uh, needed a couple of credits my senior year at Carnegie Mellon University, and there was a student-led beer brewing and appreciation class. Uh, being in Pennsylvania, you could only buy beer by the case. Class had 22 students, two instructors, so a case of beer, probably two cases of beer per uh, lesson. Um, and I, I just sort of gotten into it that way, started blogging. Beer appreciation. That sounds like a fantastic uh, elective <laughs> really? right there. My yeah, goodness. I, I, I really, I should track down the uh, the student uh, teacher and, and uh, send him a case of beer or something like that for uh, kicking me down the road into actually trying that. Um, but I moved to D.C. to work for the federal government. I worked for the Bureau of Labor Statistics for close to 10 years um, and uh, probably never would have done this if Scott... Uh, hadn't been feeding me delicious, probably quinoa-based uh, IPAs. Uh, and then, yeah, I've, I've always been a really sort of risk-averse person and um, certainly easier and safer working for the government. Uh, I won't lie, there's certainly some days in the depth of the uh, pandemic that I said, boy, it would be nice to just be sitting on my couch at home teleworking and uh, not worried about uh, how are we going to get all this beer and kegs into uh, crowlers and, and, you know, sell beer. But um, You didn't like hand-filling crawlers and we didn't even have we <laughs> our friends over at hysteria across town uh loaned us their old uh october seamer and uh we we put that thing through the ringer for about two months before we got our own um but yeah it, it's been sort of a, a really interesting journey and i certainly will echo scott's thoughts that you know it feels like a long time ago that i was uh, getting up and getting on the metro and going downtown but um you know it's also you know something that we're still moving forward with and dealing with, you know, new and different challenges and new and different beers all the time. Sure, sure. But I mean, even as bloggers, you all had, had influential, uh, you know, kind of pieces out there. I mean, I remember following the Mad Fermentationist blog back in the day. I mean, it was, uh, you know, there it was harder to find. I mean, it was just harder to find that kind of pragmatic technical approach 
um, where people were actually trying things and not just talking about the theory of things and, and proving out to see, you know, how those things worked, especially in those earlier days of sour beer where, uh, you know, there were, there was, it was still a very developing thing. Of course it then developed hit big and, uh, has now, uh, passed its plateau. Maybe that's the nice way that we'll put it there as, uh, as it kind of settles into whatever this next future of it is going to be. Um, you know, but, but, awesome to be, you know, for having spent so much time there, but then not now to move from that kind of experimental thing where you are, you know, homebrewing and producing information for other people to homebrewing and then, uh, or to brewing now in a professional context, doing the same kind of experimentation, being able to do it even more often and being able to get immediate feedback from customers on it. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you do some of that here at Sapwood. Uh, in terms of like the hop, um, realm, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to do a lot of experimentations as long as we're not, you know, making a separate, uh, you know, wart for it. I mean, it's pretty, we have a small, uh, spike fermenter that's, I think like 18 gallons at its fullest. Um, and we can, you know, we have that hooked up to our, our main glycol system. And when we're knocking out, you can, you know, tee, tee everything off and, and collect, uh, some wart in, into that. That's, um, can get, you know, different yeast strains we can play with or, you know, different fermentation temperatures or, um, you know, if we want to do different hop, uh, trials or something like that. Right. So that's kind of how we, you know, we don't have a pilot system, but we have fermenters, smaller fermenters that we, you know, we can, we can go into and kind of steal wort from, from other big batches. That's, I'm hearing more and more of that from brewers. And I see like even Firestone Walker has a system like that. I know Allagash has some, you know, SS Brutech, uh, you know, stainless for the small one, you know, small fermenters that they're doing the same kind of thing in, but that becomes the, you know, you just diverting the wort stream and throwing some in there and, you know, testing those things out. It's a very common way now to, even at a professional scale to, to brew. And I think it keeps us like, you know, when that spike fermenter is empty and we have a double IPA coming up or an IPA coming up, it almost forces you to think about things to trial or to get new yeast strains that just keep that kind of moving. And that's, um, those smaller batches, I think, are, it nags you to keep yeah, uh, to keep does. experimenting. Yeah. Okay, um, and I think I, it, it builds excitement for those beers too. Every once in a while, one of those will really hit with our club members or with the you know people who are in on Thursday to try them, and then we can in a couple of months say, hey, we've tweaked it. That same concept or that same yeast or that same hop combo is coming up on a big batch, and that sort of has a built-in excitement factor that even though you haven't tasted this beer before, you have had something in that direction. So you've trained people now to come on Thursdays for some special new release, uh, at least your core core audience here. Yeah, no, there's definitely sort of a, a real group of people who now come in every Thursday and they become friends with each other. And um, I think they have their own Facebook group or something like that, or, or at least their own uh, group, 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 ta group text, chat, group chat, chat thing. Yeah. You have um, to get that untapped New Brew Thursday uh, badge. And I mean, you know, this, this, I guess this is a new way, a great way to do it, right? But honestly, it's, it's so many of those have both turned into like new experiments like that. But then also we do infused kegs. So we'll add vanilla or we'll add, you know, cinnamon or whatever. And, and a lot of those have turned into um, bigger releases. And some of them, we, we have a, a Thai green curry IPA with galangal and coconut and... Um, Thai basil and serranos. And that's the kind of thing I never would have done a, a seven barrel batch of had we not done a couple of, five, you know, 15 gallon uh, half barrel kegs that people really responded well to. So it's uh, a way for us to let out our old sort of homebrew instincts. And if it's terrible, if it sucks, whatever. And if it's great, 
hey, there's, there may be an audience for it that you're not even expecting, even if you enjoy it. It's high yeah. style IP. I gotta, I gotta let uh, Joe Stang know about that. Of course, he <laughs> he beat me out here. He came by over the summer and uh, hung out with you all. And uh, of course, you have a breakout brewer story and a recipe in there for uh, neologism that uh, any readers of craft beer and brewing can go. Of course, check out using uh, their subscription and access through the app and, and whatnot. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how because again, both of you all have done a lot of work in that theoretical realm that you're now, of course, translating out here in the real world into the beers you. I want to talk a little bit about how you do that again, both in hoppy beers and in sour beers. Before we do that, is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point and with a more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million can minimums. For a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with a quick six- to eight-week lead time on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft and cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at AmericanCanning.com. Well, Mike, why don't you talk to me about like what the, the sour and mixed culture, mixed fermentation program looks like now. You know, again, you wrote uh, you know pretty much the the volume on American wild uh, and sour beers, um, you know. But as you now get into a commercial realm of that, you are also you also have now more insight into what consumers want, how people relate to those beers, and uh, I'm curious, you know, how some of that has impacted the way that you approach these beers, and uh, you know, you know, even process behind them. Sure. Um- we really started the program. I think the first beer we brewed is sort of an easy thing to do when you're starting at a brewery is to make some wort that you want to throw into barrels because in that case, it doesn't really matter too much what the gravity is and you're not right, too worried right. about you know, having uh, two pounds per barrel of hops in the whirlpool. And that was sort of our trial blend. Uh, and then we opened um, like six weeks later and we got a lot of, I thought you guys were going to be all about sour beers. Where are the sour beers? <laughs> like we've got one mixed ferment saison, like, I, you yeah. know, um, and part of that was people um, in the mid-Atlantic really not having had a local sort of sour barrel focused brewery before. There are a lot of breweries that did the quicker sour thing and, and we do that quite a bit now too. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just a very different sort of beer. Um, this was even four years ago, pre-smoothie, pre, uh, pre-whatever, but, you know, still sort of heavily fruited, quick turn. Um, and so it really took us like six or nine months to really bottle the first thing, and we're bottle conditioning, so that took some more time. And it was really pretty close to our first anniversary by the time we actually put out our first bottle uh, of sour beer. And early on, I think we were doing some bigger runs. We were doing like 1,200, 1,500 bottles, and um, we really learned it's sort of that sort of easy lesson that, it's easier to sell someone two bottles of uh, something. I'm sorry, it's easier to sell them one bottle each of two beers than two bottles of one beer. And so we've really been sticking more to sort of smaller runs, um, more targeted, more interesting, more intense flavors, those sorts of things. Um, fruit is obviously like a really um, easy reference for people. And so we certainly love using fruit and beers. 
We also certainly try to do like interesting barrels. You were talking about neologism, which is gin barrels. We do dry hop sours. We certainly do plenty of um, non-fruited, not non-adjuncted sorts of sours, but um, those are sort of more to mix in. Um, it's always, I think, a lot easier to sell someone a, a cherry sour or a blackberry sour or a honey sour, you know, sort of flavors that they're familiar with rather than trying to explain these subtle, perhaps, differences between American Wild Ale, uh, Brett Saison, a uh, mixed ferment blonde, and, uh, you know, that those all kind of sure, sound like sure, the same sure. thing. What does the creative process then look like? Uh, you know, because of course you're talking, as you mentioned, about beers that are going to have a long lead time on them. Um, do you approach it creatively from the idea of single stream, or are you then building a certain amount of aging stock using that, uh, you know, consistent health, house culture or certain number, a oh, single recipe or number of recipes? And then, you know, as some of those start to mature, then starting to design and build beers from that. What's uh, what does that process then look like for you? Yeah. So when we started out, we did sort of the let's call it the Royal Rumble format, where pretty much every barrel got a unique culture, whether it was a commercial dregs, a commercial you know micro blend we built up from a lab, whether it was bottle dregs from a beer we particularly enjoyed, or we had some friends over for a bottle share and said, "Wow, this is great," put that in. Um, we did a little bit of wild capture stuff. We did sort of, you know, all, all of the above. Um, and then sort of after the first year or two, um, where maybe we were refilling barrels that had a culture in them, but then sort of maybe adding microbes on top of them, we've really moved to more of a um, taste through the barrels when we have a, a batch of sour base in there, pick out a culture from one of the barrels that we really like, pull some of that out, pitch that in um, as sort of a, a house starter. Um, and we've really, I mean, sort of the, the challenge that every sour brewery I, that I've talked to goes through is hitting that right level of acidity. Yeah, and that was sort sure. of our problem early on. We weren't getting enough acidity. Um, we were probably um, just not pitching. Either we weren't pitching enough microbes or we were not mashing hot enough or, or take, take your pick. And then we, you know, sort of started steering that, that cruise ship and turning the wheel and turning the wheel and turning the wheel. And then all of a sudden we were having beers finish down you know pretty close to three flat and being too acidic and um at a level where uh we a lot of people still really like them but it became more of a a special uh bring it to a bottle share enjoy an ounce or two really blow out your palate really wow someone but then uh the pandemic hit and people <laughs> weren't going to bottle shares and People were, you know, send me photos of their, their, you know, downstairs closet that had, you know, 75 bottles of our beer in it. And it really just struck me that, like, at a certain level, beer has to be delicious. You really, you want to make beers, whether it is an IPA or Imperial Stout or an Oktoberfest where someone has one and maybe they mix it up and have something else. But the next day they go, wow, that was real good. And I shared that with my buddy. I could drink another one by myself tonight. Um, and that's we've, the last sort of year or two we've been really trying to push our sour beers to a uh, higher final pH, to a more balanced, drinkable, um, unique um, sort of place, but not so sour or so um, obnoxious that uh, they are only a very small sample sort of uh, uh, treat. Sure, sure. In many ways, the program seems like evolutionary, just like the cultures are themselves, where, you know, those opportunistic things that, uh, you know, that find, uh, you know, some way to thrive um, tend to, to push their way forward. And, and some of those things that 
uh, you know, don't find a foothold or, you know, they, um, you know, they kind of fall by the wayside. And, that, you know, that is interesting to see. And we see that, you know, I mean, that's, you know, my conversations with the folks from Beechwood and, you know, Blendery and others the same kind of way. Like we do a lot of things and then we found the good barrels that we really liked. Now we kept doing more of that, like lean into the things that are working for you, pull out the things that don't work and then kind of fall through there. But that is interesting to think about that idea of, of just pursuing pleasure that, uh, you know, these shouldn't necessarily be as, you know, academic exercises that uh, require people to keep extensive notes and uh, have a deep knowledge to be able to appreciate it. They should also, you know, be able to think about it, but just approach it on a, on a human level and enjoy drinking it. I've, I've always said uh, like Tree Fontaine and Goose is one of my favorite beers because I think you could drink a, you know, half liter mug of that cold watching football and just enjoy it. It's like a tart, refreshing, delicious beer. Or you could sit there with it in a snifter for, you know, two hours and, and get every waft of microbes and barrel and aged hops and, and the whole thing. Um, and I really love making beers and drinking beers that like have that, duality that you know could could either be delicious session beer or uh connoisseurs you know sort of product well, sure. it's just a yeah. good base too for fruit or anything yeah. else too a good beer on its own generally is is pretty good with fruit or some sort of oh, like fermentation yeah. yeah and something like three fontana is gonna have its own citrus character to it even though there's no citrus just in the the straight you know uh, straight goose itself yeah you know where you know if you're in northern europe and uh you know it's harder to get fresh fruit at certain points of the year, like, hey, you have great fruity beer that, uh, without any of that. Anyway, let's talk about how you build recipes now. What, what is sure. a, what's a recipe look like then for it? And, uh, you, you know, have you, well, let's talk about that first. You know, what do, what do you build to, to kind of support this culture to do its work? And then we'll talk about the culture itself. Sure. I, I think I recently did a count, and I think we currently, in our 80-some-odd barrels, have 30-some-odd different beers currently aging. And so some of that is, and you, you touched on sort of the, the wort stream, um, we will definitely steal and fill a barrel or two off of a 20-barrel batch. Um, so we just released uh, Measure Twice, which was our uh, pre-dry hopped all Nelson pale ale, aged in barrels that we'd pulled out our three-year blend from, and so like just left the full culture in there, did not rinse the barrel, did not even turn them over. Um, and so that's like a very unique one-off-y kind of thing, but it worked really well, and now we might do that more often. It's delicious. We're drinking it right now, and it's everything I love about Nelson uh, hoppy beers, but also with that really bright hit of acidity, um, but with a creaminess that also just feels like indulgent without it being sweet. I don't know yeah. how you do it, but it's it's magical, and I want more of it. No, and, and those are really unique because I wouldn't have thought, I mean, I think technically that beer was 65 or 70 IBUs. It certainly doesn't taste, and we're lucky that it didn't get super-duper sour. The pH is only about 3.6 or 3.7. Um, but we'll do that sort of, you know, we did a triple and some of that went to Calvados barrels. We did a, uh, black Doppelbach German Imperial stout, something, something that we put into, um, second or third use bourbon and Pinot Noir. Some of it went to cherry. So there are some of those that are, Hey, we don't need 20 barrels of black sure, Doppelbach. Sure. We are basically don't, don't do much distribution. We, we send a few cases out, but. Um, so we'll do that just sort of as a way to like regulate the amount of, you know, different beers that seem like they would work. But then we also have a dedicated sour fermenter that we will um, usually um, mash really hot that sort of are, are likely going to be the acid beer if we're blending something. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of um, unmalted grains. We'll do a lot of flaked rye or oats or wheat, those sorts of things. 
We do a lot of uh, wine yeast primary fermentations, which is something Scott and I both played with as home brewers. Mm. Uh, wine yeast tend to be not very um, attenuative in wort because they have not been sort of raised to ferment maltotriose and, and particularly the more- They get all that easily fermentable uh, grape juice right. and then things rip get through lazy. it. Get lazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so in that case, if it's in the primary sour fermenter, that's when we might be adding some microbes early on to sort of get the whole batch going. Mm. That makes blending a lot easier too. If you've got, you know, you know, between five and 10 barrels of the same, the same wort that was, you know, went through the same mash, that got the same microbes, those are all probably safe to blend together. And um, that's one of the big sort of drawbacks of us having a lot of different cultures is that you, there's some extra steps yeah well some some concern you really have to um do gravity readings if you have a beer that finishes at one play-doh and one that finished at three play-doh that are the same wort probably you're not not a good idea to blend those together and bottle them right away because the microbes from the one play-doh wort are going to go work on that extra play-doh that's in in the blend and probably uh make some make some bottle bombs um, so so you, you don't have a consistent or, you know, recipe, you know, but there are some just general tenants to that, like you mentioned yeah. with some of the, the there, other adjuncts. And we, we have three or four sort of um, core sour beer bases. We uh, jokingly call one Merylambic, which is sort of our uh, <laughs> aged hop. Uh, we try it's kind of like that Sonambic thing they make out yeah. there on the <laughs> West Coast, right? Merylambic, Mar- I like Vin- it. Vinny wrote the forward to American Sour Beer, so I, I feel like every once in a while I can borrow a little something. For sure. Um, but sort of the same concept where we don't release beers with that. People got very mad when I mentioned that online at one point, but no one has a problem with saying we're making a Kolsch or whatever. But that's a, that's a separate that's a separate thing. We'll tap into Phil Markowski on that argument because he's got his own ideas. Anyway. Uh, yeah. But we, we have sort of like a like a Belgian pale base sure, that is sure. um, pills and wheat and old Vienna. We have a Flanders red sort of base. We have a strong Flanders red base. And those are essentially just my recipes that are probably on the blog with uh, Pils Vienna and Munich, some Cara Munich or some Cara Vienna, um, and usually some sort of, you know, either wheat or oats or something like that. Uh, and then we have a, those, I feel like those that's, are sort of the main, those are the main ones. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of like the main ones that we'll do like a 10 or a 20 barrel batch of and have a lot of that because those are all sort of, friendly beers for fruit or blending or dry hopping or, and then it's sort of the other weird ones that are sort of more one-off. We uh, did one that started at about 28 Play-Doh that uh, we uh, aged for a year or two and then uh, packaged still. We do, um, I'm trying to think what else is sort of in, in we've done some like Saison-y stuff, although the, f- the fresh mixed firm Saisons um, haven't been uh, moving as well. One of our big sort of hurdles at the moment mm. is we just don't have that many tap lines. Yeah. And so it's hard to have a line that is just sort of you sell three or four a day when you know you could put on a fruited sour on that same line and it would sell 30 or 40 a day. We're back to evolution again. And here it is, the <laughs> evolution of the business where uh, you know you either thrive or die. And uh, it happens even with your own beers in your own tap room. Yeah. And, we, and for a while, we were really hopeful that just having like bottles of those sorts of things sure, would sure. do well. But um, the tap room sort of experience model people, really, the bottle can be a little intimidating. And being able to give someone a free little taste of something um, you know, a Brett Saison can be super duper sour. It can be not sour at all. It can right. be fresh. It can be uh, have a funkiness that's really offensive to you. And being able to give someone just a little taste of something is really, um, even if the per ounce cost is the same, it's going to sell that glass a lot easier than here's the bottle. Here's what it looks like. You know, 
people are a little more nervous about taking the risk if, uh, if they're going to go all in on that bottle. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And and so that's something we're, we're hoping to eventually sort of address with some more tap lines and the ability to have some of these things on as more of a sample thing or if sure. we want to go more of the, the winery route and, you know, have uh, structured tastings on, you know, less busy days or as a ticketed thing once a month or whatever. But um, sure. Well, let's talk like what are uh, let's talk about a couple maybe recent projects over the last year year and a half that uh, you know one or two that have been really particularly exciting for you stuff where uh, you learned something through the process um, you know or found some new aspects uh, you know that have, have taught you something about what sour beer can be whether that's you know from sensory and flavor or, or even through process. I think maybe just even start with the beer yeah. um, that's in front of us, but that you know. Um, I think dry hop sour beers is always like, I very excited about those. I, I wish there was more of them on the market, the, the mixed firm type of, dry uh, I beers. love dry hop sour beers. I and I, one of, I know I've written about it in many years, you know, over a number of years now and mentioned a number of times. One of my favorite sour beers on the planet is uh, Le Terroir from, from new Belgium. You know, it's their Amarillo dry hopped, you know, blonde sour beer. And, and it's, you know, it, it's spectacular. It's always yeah. uh, a fantastic beer. And so I love watching more experimentation going here. And now, of course, you have more hops at your command yeah. now than ever and more techniques and how to use those hops in ways that are kind of bending some of the kind of traditional boundaries. Uh, this beer in particular is very hazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, you're using the kind of textural piece um, you know, and that kind of haze to kind of to capture and soften the the flavor of this, even though the acidity and the kind of general structure is there. But yeah, talk to me about about brewing this kind of uh, you know blend of what uh, of this traditional sour beer and more hop forward hazy yeah. beer. Well, in terms of the the dry hopping, I think it's always kind of been my opinion that the lower the pH of the of the beer, the more sort of generic kind of hoppiness you get from a dry hop. Um, but I think if you're using hops that are just more potent on their own, like, you know, Rewaka and, and Nelson just have a, they can hold up a little better at those lower pHs. I think it might be, you know, a higher pH is a better extractant. So that could be, could be part of it. Um, but for this beer, yeah, using Nelson and Rewaka that can really kind of, I mean, they're wow hops. Yeah. Um, and they're also, you know, likely, you know, haze positive hops too, which probably, you know, helped with a little bit of what you were describing for the visual thing. But, right. Um, but for me, yeah, Those like haze positive hops. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just kind of a, you know, finding, finding that balance. And I think, you know, we go a little lower on the, the dry hopping on, on these beers than you would like a double IPA or something. Well, like this that. is like three pounds per barrel. So it's a little, low, little but lower, not, not crazy. It's still, you know, significant. Um, the big difference with this, and one, this had its own wart stream where it was coming out of also pale ale. A pale ale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, up until this point, we'd done three or four of these sort of dry hop sours, but the base had always been a, 10 IBU, very sort of, you know, one of our sort of standard sour bases or a Saison or something like that. Um, I was very nervous, and this was, this was Scott's baby, um, to avoid that oxidized old hop flavor. I, yeah. I think I've, I've had too many, and it may be that they tasted great on packaging day, and by the time they were uh, ball conditioned and on the shelf a year later, of course, they tasted a little bit old. Um, but this one, we went sort of really out of our way. We're, we're always sort of fanatical about oxygen. We always purge our barrels with CO2 before we fill them. We always try to have um, active microbes ready to go. But in this case, we 
purged longer than normal. We didn't rinse the barrels, so there were, you know, Brett and, and um, likely other uh, bacteria and wild yeast uh, ready to go immediately. Um, we package on just a little uh, forehead uh, counter pressure filler, so we're not dealing with the trough and oxygen pickup and all that. Um, we, uh, for all our beers, uh, percarbonate, so it's a, a, something I picked up from uh, Tommy Arthur at uh, Lost Abbey, Pizza Port, whatever. Um, so we, we bring it up to about 1.8 or 1.9 volumes of CO2, and then we are priming, uh, usually with uh, champagne yeast and a little sugar, to get that last mile. Hmm. Um, but sort of the idea that you, you know, have hopefully a better fill because you've got CO2 in there that's breaking out at least a little bit, but then you've got that wine yeast that's going to work right away and um, you know, scrubbing oxygen, you know, protecting things, getting to the Brett, which will then do sort of the long-term work. Um, and sort of all that stuff together, I think, you know, this was, um, this has been sitting warm for two months. Yeah. Um, so it's still has a freshness, a vibrancy that, you know, you might not expect from even a fresh pale ale that, you know, sat around warm for two months is generally not, you know, the best beer you've ever, the hoppiest <laughs> sure, yeah. beer sure, you've ever had. Sure. Um, and so I, maybe I, one week and, and even it's not the best beer it, that I've, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I think that's sort of for us, you know, having learned all this stuff about, making clean hoppy beers then goes into making you know sour hoppy beers that are you know better and and juicier and and all those things um i guess we should point out too this was pre-dry hop going yes. into barrels so this is not a, a pale ale that was dry hopped and right. then and then yeah. you know aging for a while which i think um you definitely have more of that it took some hop. first wort and some whirlpool hops with it but it didn't take any yep. dry hops yep, exactly. exactly yeah because it still has to have that to you know to, to fit your whole fermentation program, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I think that was one that really stands out. Uh, last summer, we did one with uh, Farged Wineberries, where we worked with um, a local uh, restaurant in Baltimore called Farged Eatery and Fed, Fadensonnen, yep. which is a wine bar. Uh, and we all went out for a day of picking these little tiny raspberry donut-flavored uh, wild uh, ribes. I forget ribes. what the... The, the, the term for raspberries and blackberries is, but um, that was really fun. We put and, it into uh, Old Westminster, uh, it's a natural winery here, yeah. one of their barrels that was- One of their red, a couple yeah, of their red Recently wines. emptied, and yeah, that was a standout for me too. Yeah, no, I, I love that sort of, um, and we were talking sort of off the air before, that sort of intersection of beer and wine is, is really fun. And um, we've got a beer with uh, Bissell Brothers that is on uh, local white wine grapes right now that's getting packaged probably next week, so. Those things are always like really fun and interesting, and I think a little less dominant. As much as I, I think we all know what raspberries and, and blackberries and cherries taste like, and mm -hmm. wine grapes can be maybe a little bit more complex, or at least maybe it's easier to find sort of individual varietals of it. Whereas raspberries, you're often just ordering raspberries and you get raspberries. Right, right. Uh, with wine grapes, you might be able to get Chardonnay or Sauv Blanc or Vidal Blanc or whatever it is. And that's... Um, Cabernet Sauvignon or Syrah, you know, yeah. and which all express in very different ways. Yeah, sure. and, and, and are um, marketed in different ways where often you get sour cherries and there are a bunch of different sour cherry varieties mm -hmm. unless you're talking maybe not even to the people who work at the orchard, but to whoever's running the orchard is the only one who knows that they're using North Star or whatever, whatever right. it is. right. Well, you mentioned earlier that you had some, you know, challenges kind of getting the acidity to the right place uh, exactly where you want it. What, these days, uh, how do you how do you work on that? How do you buffer that and make sure that, uh, um, you know, as you're working through these sour programs, that uh, your culture is robust, but that, uh, um, you know, the beers are going to end up in a place where they're going to be more pleasurable for people to drink uh, in greater quantities. I think one of the weird things for us early on was um, 
our beer would be pleasantly sour and then we would add fruit and it would stay at about the same level of acidity. And then really what changed, I don't know that the beers were necessarily getting that much more acidic pre-fruit, but once we were adding the fruit, then the pH was really just plummeting. And I assume it was that those microbes were getting more and more tolerant of pH, um, alcohol, um, time, you know, all those sorts of things that they were really sort of getting hardier. Um, and that was really sort of where we now have um, started looking for different things when we are adding fruit to a beer. We are looking for beers that are for barrels that are under sour, if anything, and that fruit is really sort of um, both since it's adding its own acid, particularly in the case of something like apricots, uh, stone fruit in general, we seem to get a lot higher acid pickup, um, obviously things like sour cherries as well. Um, but then we are um, making sure, I mean, we always, we always were repitching yeast to make sure that there is a, a non-acid producing microbe that is then eating up a lot of those sugars right, so that right. it's not all going to the pediococcus or all the lactobacillus that might be there before. Let that um, sack do its job and, uh, you know, before some of the souring bacteria right. can get to it. What's crazy, though, is like we we had a beer called Sakoon Cherry that was um, we did a we do a Flanders Red every other year on cherries called Opulence, where we use dried sour cherries in the barrel and then we do fresh sweet and sour cherries post barrel. And we had a dark Saison that finished under one Play-Doh and it went on to the second use cherries from Opulence and the pH got down to three flat and so there was just like there was no sugar left in there it's just the kind of thing i it, and second use makes it even more yeah, yeah like the the cherries had been already fermented out opulence wasn't nearly that sour um i think it's just it doesn't take much sugar for that much acid production you know you're not talking about three or four percent acidity you're talking about half a percent or 0.75 percent acidity and that's something we've been sort of playing with is just yeah um raising our hopping rates fermenting our beers a little bit drier, um, doing some barrels. We've gotten some new barrels where we've only pitched Britannomyces and not pitching the, the, mm. the lacto and the PDO, um, partly as a stopgap that we now have something where we could potentially blend anyway into um, uh, you know, one really acidic barrel sure, and one sure. no acidity barrel. Um, the problem with pH is it's logarithmic, and if you're blending a three and a four, you don't get to three, five, you get to three, two or <laughs> right, something like that. Right. Um, We've done some like uh, hot rinsing too of, of barrels before a, a refill, yeah. trying to knock down the microbes a little bit that way. We we started out doing that, and then we weren't getting enough acidity, and then we went to cool rinses, and on uh, pretty quickly it was too acidic. So we've really just uh, for the most part we've always done hot rinses, but had a had a brief uh, dalliance with cold rinses, and now we've got some barrels <laughs> that are about a year old. Um, but really, it's also it's picking. Just try chains. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah go Cantillon style. <laughs> um, but really, it's it's figuring out other things to do with those barrels. Right. So um, our our brewer uh, lead brewer Ken uh, has an awesome garden. He had a whole bunch of pineapple sage. My wife has lemon verbena. We both picked a bunch of those, and those are infused into a couple of kegs that will then blend back into some of these more acidic barrels. The barrels are not too acidic on their own, but. I know that they're at 3.2 pH and they're pleasantly acidic for me. If we add fruit to them, they're going to go down down that rabbit hole to very low. And so um, instead they'll get an herbal approach exactly. where, uh, where it won't cause that additional. Yeah, and we, we've got, we're thinking, uh, we, we do a series of hoppy beers called Sorbet where we do citrus zest and vanilla. And so that's another fun potential you know, addition to a already sour enough um, uh, base. 
that, you know, hey, the citrus zest isn't going to have any additional fermentables. The vanilla is going to give a perceived sweetness, creaminess that's going to help to balance that. And so that, those are things that we can do. And dry, dry hopping is another great option. Good dry hops tend to raise the pH, and they're also just not going to lower it anymore. Right. Um, well, that's a great segue to start talking about hoppy beers and the hoppy side of this brewery here at Sapwood. Um, before we do that, ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom-designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Also, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree picked at the peak of ripeness. The fruit is pureed and frozen for optimal fresh flavor and color, but don't just take their word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfectpuree, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. Tells you something about uh, fruit that we've got two underwriters and sponsors of the podcast that are both fruit focused. All right, guys, so let's talk about, uh, you know, hoppy, hoppy beers, this other element of this Jekyll and Hyde brew. It's not even Jekyll and Hyde because sometimes it's the same dual personality at the same time where it's like both of them. Then you're, you're just like, you know, uh, yeah, anyway. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about hoppy beers, and we've got another beer here now to try. Uh, you know, but talk to me about uh, you know Scott, maybe how you've tried to put in practice some of the theoretical learnings that you know you drove and and found through a lot of your research and looking at various studies on hop compounds, hop flavors, all these things that contribute to hops, and then triangulated through some of these processes that help those things express and what that now means within the IPA program at, at Sapwood. Sure. I think, you know, for me, going through the book, uh, research for the book and, and, and still continuing to stay on top of all the latest uh, academic research has really been more of like a, a means of uh, inspiring experimentation. Um, so, you know, you know reading a, a study about different dry hop temperatures or, or you, know, you know, pick your pick your topic and um, being at least relatively convinced by the results enough to do a small trial or, you know, use our little spike fermenter to try something. Um, so yeah, the, the, the research has always been, um, at least, you know, for me, more of a process to look at what we could try to change, um, as well as sometimes just understand our, our results. Um, just having a better idea of what, you know, knowing what, if what you're doing is actually making a difference or not. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of our process is, um, fairly standard, fairly typical. Um, but there is a few areas where I think the research has really, um, pushed us to, to move our, you know, how we were doing, especially, you know, even at home is, um, drastically different, like dry hopping wise, I think, um, you know, so like, for example, like we're going lower and lower on our dry hop temperatures. I think we first started about. 58 degrees or so we do a soft crash um you know get all the yeast out harvest do whatever we need to um, and then start dry hopping um and we've just found i think even more lately in the lower abv beers um just that you can get you know dry hopping at the rate that we like to um you can get too much of an astringent kind of green um lasting bite in some of those beers that just enhances like um, almost a fake bitterness or you know a vegetal type bitterness 
Um, and so just like using the research that, you know, kind of shows that the, the, the colder the temperature, the less of those greener compounds you're getting, you know, myrcene, um, for example, or, you know, some of the polyphenols are, are less. Um, so that's like shorter contact time um, was less of that. Um, colder temperatures, you, you got a little bit less of that. Um, so we just, we've kept uh, dialing back. Um, and now a lot of them are, are, are sub, sub 40 um, dry wow. hop. Yeah. Wow. Um, but I always like to say that's what we're doing now. And again, if, you know, as we keep <laughs> experimenting, we, you know, I'm sure in a year it'll probably be a little different, but. Um, part, so, of, part, part of that I was going to say is that um, we've also uh, moved to more aggressive rousing of the hops. Yeah. And so we got like a high flow regulator to allow us to really blast those hops back into suspension. I think that was sort of our problem is that we, I think, hadn't been getting enough hop aroma. And so we went to being more aggressive with rousing. But then that caused more of all the hop compounds, including the polyphenols and the astringent sort of character. And so now we've been backing the temperature down with that more aggressive rousing as a way to mitigate the polyphenol pickup, hopefully, without hampering the uh, extraction of the aromatic compounds. Right. And I think that's a, especially important when you're doing those like pretty much, you know, fridge temperatures, because just that cold is really kind of, um, you know, I always wish we could see inside these tanks to see what exactly was happening. But I'm um, pretty, pretty confident those colder temperatures, the hops are dropping um, even quicker. And so I think that's where rousing at those lower when temperatures. When is somebody going to build a tank like that? Because I've, <laughs> I've, I mean, I've seen kettles like that we, uh, and mash and we kind of have water. We, yeah. we, we have an ultimate brew tank, which is like an infusion tank. And it's mm -hmm. got a little sort of porthole on the yeah. front and on the top. Um, it's not perfect, particularly with these hazy beers, yeah. but. You can look in the top and sort of see the, you know, welling up of all the, the, the hops and whatever. But so it's honestly what I'm more interested in is down by the cone. Right. You know, if you're just blasting up through the middle and all the hops are stuck to the side, it doesn't really uh, sure, sure. accomplish much. So I think just yeah. even just something simple, though, is after you do a rousing, whatever your, your technique is, you just take pull a sample immediately after and honestly do it before and after. Um, and it, it should look messy. I mean, it's a pretty much a hop salad at that point. It's, and that's what you want. You want those hops in the, in suspension doing their thing. So aggressively blowing CO2 through a high volume, you know, regulator on the bottom also has the potential to knock out aromatics from, you know, out of the liquid into headspace that may not come back into that liquid. How do you balance those kinds of things? Because at the same time, you've got to, you know, it's not going to aggressively bubble through if there's not some place for it to go. And so you have to reduce, you know, some head pressure or allow it to blow off or get it, you know, bring that down. You know, what is, what does that rousing process then really look like for you all? Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it is kind of a balance of, of all this, you know, I'm, you I'm start venting this off and all of a sudden, like all of this aroma is just blowing right out right. of your tank. But if it's at the, you know, if at the same time you're picking up more compounds because of it, then it's probably worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of those really volatile compounds are like the myrosines and some of the other ones that you don't necessarily want. Yeah, anyway. blow the bad those, those shit can off. Go, right, those can right. go in the headspace. But um, I, I, for us, you know, I, the the first uh, so we typically do two um, dry hop charges about two days apart, um, and I'm less worried. I think we're both less worried about losing um, you know hop compounds through a big burp on that first dry hop charge. Um, this is you know an hour or so after the hops hit the tank. Um, we're doing a big blast with hardly any head pressure at that point. Um, just the hop, to, the hop compounds that are in there have already survived hot fermentation, right, right. Yeah. flocculation. They're probably pretty 
well uh, in there. And the dry hops haven't done much at all at that point. And so that first burp, very aggressive, hopefully, um, you know, getting a lot of, of the ex- extraction done with that. And then the, the following ones, um, there is, you know, head pressure on to hopefully retain a little bit, although even you're still pushing, yeah. um, pushing the hops up through the, through the comb. But again, if, if you're getting more extraction from them, it's probably a good trade-off. And, and honestly, sort of, again, taste, taste as you go. And we used to do three rounds of rousing and now we've gone down to two, you know, we sort of noticed that we didn't seem to be getting that much more on that third one. But we definitely noticed, and we, we've talked to some breweries that don't rouse at all, and we tried that and tasted the beer, and it's just like, there's no hop character. <laughs> and that may be a combination of, hey, we're doing it colder, we're doing it under pressure, they might be doing it warm and open, and so they're getting natural convections as CO2 is being released and those sorts of things. Or It does seem like these are all equations you can solve, and you solve in different ways, whether it's by trying to add more or, again, using temperature, but having certain hops, you know, in your hop selection that may not produce those things, um, or whether it's pumping and recirculating, or whether it's rousing, whether it's, you know, using a dosing tank in some way. Like, you know, there are obviously lots and lots of solutions. I'm just curious, you know, I thought it was interesting for you. And, And, of course... When we came in this morning, you were dry hopping a tank, and uh, you also have a very purge, a purgeable vessel, you know, where you, all of your dry hopping is even happening through happening through a purged vessel, so you're not putting uh, oxygen in there, and you're also able to maintain head pressure on that tank while you're dry hopping, um, you know, rather than allowing any anything else out into that environment. You know, talk to me about that. I mean, it is a little little nerdy and a little finicky <laughs> to dry hop that way rather than just opening a tank. That's a little safer too, with, yeah, with I, having it closed. I, I I got a little beer shower on our first double IPA. <laughs> so just being able to not and we what we used to do is we would open up and then we would throw a pound or two in and would close up and let it have CO2 going itself through the spray ball out the whole time. Yeah. And then then it would bubble itself out and then would open up again and run the CO2 and dump more hops in. And really it took longer than what we do now, which is just put the hops in the thing, purge it a couple of times, drop them in through the the dry hop valve at the top. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's from, I think it's like Mark's Engineering, and we have a 22-pound doser, hop doser. They sell an 11-pound one um, sort of directly, and we use that for a while. But with the 20-barrel tanks and doing 88 pounds of hops, doing that eight times was uh, a yeah. little bit of a hassle. There you go. You need a bigger, bigger hopper then for your, oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and for us, I mean, sort of a, a gateway in between. You know, if, if you're a lot bigger and you have a hop cannon or something right. Right. more, um you know, up to, up to the top of your 120-barrel tank, that makes a lot of sense. For us, getting up on a ladder on the ladder hooks and dumping hops in is, is a relatively easy, uh, you know, 10-minute kind of operation. It fits the budget, and it uh, accomplishes that goal, goal of, uh, you know, keeping th- everything in there. Um, you know, in terms of IPA, what, uh, what is, uh, you know, how do you then you know, support some of this kind of hop flavor through uh, recipe, you know, body and fermentation? Um, you know, I like how a lot of the research now that's coming out from the hop suppliers themselves, like Yakima Chief, is, is being made is being made public, and, and um, they're very open about it. Um, for Mike and I, it was um, early on, we'd noticed that there was like certain hops we'd use hot side that just carried through a lot better than others. Um, Idaho 7, we were like so high on that we had to actually start backing it down a little bit. It, it was, be, you <laughs> it was know, over, to, overwhelming the dry hops. Yeah, which is, you can't say that with hardly yeah. any um, hot Sa- side. Sabro, maybe. Yeah, exactly. But both, both of those not necessarily in the best possible way. Uh, mm. You know, it's not what you want is the, you know, just because just it's survivable doesn't mean it makes a better beer. Right. 
And then survivable is the main term there. That's yeah. kind of the, the new one that they dubbed. But that's, you know, Idaho 7 was at the top of that list. And it's really just, um, I, I like that kind of stuff just because it, it, it gives, again, it's a guide for experimentation. If there's some science to be said about using certain hop varieties at certain time to get the most out of them, it's at least worth experimenting with. Um, and so for a lot of ours, you know, really, I'll, I will take a high survivable, low alpha hop um, over most for uh, for um, whirlpooling just to push as many complex set of hop compounds into the fermenter as possible, keeping the bitterness um, in check, mostly with um, whirlpool temperature changes. Um, so we use use the research in, in a lot of ways like that, but um, after Idaho Seven, are there any others that uh, you're particularly hot on? I I'm a big fan of Ruwaka Hot Side. Mm -hmm. I wish it was you know maybe a little more affordable to be throwing that in <laughs> sure, Hot Side, sure. but um, it it just carries through really well. We did an IPL with it um, about a year ago or so, um, and Almost I was just two, I think I was just floored by how yeah. much of that Ruwaka was in the beer before we were dry hopping. So you know you know taking a taste and smell before the the hops go in. Yeah. Um, and that's really where you can you know, set other hops apart, or other hot side hops apart from each other is doing that pre-dry hop tasting. And that survivables chart, if, if people want to reference it, and those hop varieties that are high in survivables, it's something we've published in both of, both the Brewing Industry Guide and in Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. It's also available directly from YCH, uh, Yakima Chief Hops. Um, and you can just do a Google search for it and find it. It's very valuable and interesting to look at, to think about, you know, that hops in this kind of context are going to work better for this kind of thing, whereas others might work better in these other kinds of contexts. Right. Any other hops that you really, really love in, in the Whirlpool? Uh, you know, lately we've just been trying to experiment more with the lower, lowest alpha hops we can kind yeah. of get our hands mm -hmm. on just like to... Crystal is crystal. one that like the, the oil numbers look good, but the total oil isn't super high. And so yeah. it's sort of a trade-off, you know, are you better off using... Um, you know, half a pound per barrel of a 10% alpha with 2% oil or 11 pounds of a 5% alpha with 1% oil, and maybe you end up in the same spot. Or um, we, we just did a beer with uh, somebody who was selling uh, 2018 Cascade Cryo for about five bucks a pound. But that's another one where, hey, it's got some age on it. That alpha is probably decayed, but it's smelled good. And it, you know, has um, uh, cryo seems to stay in suspension a little bit better than some other varieties, maybe extract a little bit better. Cascade has a lot of those positive compounds, you know, but is that better at 12 and percent alpha than, um, you know, Simcoe or something that's 12 and on its own. Right. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I guess really, there's not a lot of hops that are just um, wow. carry, yeah, carry through on the hot side, but it's more of that complexity builder kind of getting a good base, good foundation for, for dry hopping. But, um, I do think that, um, we, we go fairly heavy on a whirlpool. So we're like close to close to two pounds per barrel. Mm. Um, and you know, I think for us, it's just keeping that bitterness in check, but it's really just trying to push as many of those compounds into the fermenter as possible. So using lower alpha hops or dropping the temperature or using some of the new advanced hop yep. products, um, Salvo, we've used a handful of times recently where, you know, on top of our normal, I think for, on top yeah. of our normal whirlpool rate, it's just a, another way to add um, more, you know, compounds. more compounds, but without, you know, worrying about bitterness. And, and you know, even on those, I think if you can get a survivable, high survivable variety, it makes sense to experiment yeah. with that. Sure, sure. What do you, what's fermentation really look like for most of your IPAs? 
Uh, we knock out around usually like 60. It depends on the yeast strain. Yeah. We, um, and are you primarily working in that kind of hazy, juicy IPA space or do you also rock into that West Coast world too? We've done like one or two West Coast and, and just with whatever our process is, they end up just being <laughs> they hazy, hazy, juicy. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. So, you know, knowing then that, that you've stayed you know, mostly in this hazy, juicy world, uh, you know, what does is, what is fermentation typically look like for one of your IPAs? I think generally, we, yeah, we knock out around 66, um, maybe set the, the the fermenter to 68, just kind of let it naturally come up. Um, it's there for a couple of days. It's um, like a London Ale 3 kind of variant. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we do those. We've done the thiolized strains. We've done Conan. We've done, we, we, for a while, were sort of keeping it more consistent. But then as we've sort of gained experience, we try to sort of match like, oh, if we're doing a a bunch of Simcoe beers or something like Conan maybe is really going to reinforce those flavors. Hey, if we've got Galaxy or Hydra, one of those thiolized strains with that passion fruit thing might really sort of enhance that. Um, I wish we had more tanks and could do like more strains, you know, all together at the same yeah. time. So you choose yeast strains based on your hop goals. I like that. And then, I mean, but the problem is a small brewery, then you always have to fit in one or two or sort of the same thing. If like we, um, we've got a pitch of, of uh, London Ale going now, but we did a porter and an imperial stout with it, and so definitely we didn't want the uh, the high thiol whatever you know strain in the porter in the stout. If we're doing a run that's hey, it's got a passion fruit sour IPA, let's bring in that thiolized strain and really help to push that passion fruit aroma. So yeah, it's a, uh, I mean the, I think as a small brewery you have to do the things that can set you apart from the big brewery that really can only have one strain and you know, or you know maybe they bring in one special strain once a year or whatever it is we. Uh, like to keep it uh, fresh and variety and keep learning from it. Right. And that's kind of where that little fermenter comes in handy to, to test these out. And I mean, generally we're, we're doing a, a pale ale, 10 barrel batch, harvesting that yeast and then doing an IPA and a double IPA. And then for the most part, that's usually the end of that, yeah. that lifespan for the yeast. So we have, just cause at that point all our tanks are full. Yeah. And so we really could change yeast, you know, pretty much monthly. Um, so we we do a big batch when we're fairly confident with with what we're going to get from it. Um, but like Mike said, I mean that's kind of where the, the fun is. But it's also more of a challenge too to to how to you know utilize those like high thyle um, strains, for example, like which which hops to use with them. Well, yeah, what have you been learning on that? I mean, and I'm only asking because everyone seems to want to listen to our content about thyle. It's like <laughs> it's a strange one. But I mean, uh, we, we look at how people respond and I mean, yeah. the interest in thiols is absolutely insane this year. Well, I think it with, with, for a reason, I mean, like some of the, the, these bioengineered yeast strains are, you know, 24 hours into fermentation, there's almost already a wow type of scenario. Um, but we've really found that, you know, if you're dry hopping these beers really heavily, I mean, the, we've sent, sent these um, beers to labs to get get tested and you know the thiol content after dry hopping is reduced a little bit but still way it's over threshold still ten, 10 times or 20 times what yeah. threshold is but it's not even close to as apparent as it was pre-dry hop so there is like a, a masking or you know competition going on amongst flavors and compounds and so um, we're still trying to figure out the best way to, to utilize those strains i think but um, what have been your favorite strains to use and what have you found in using them um, that have really made them sing? Whether that's hop variety or whether that's some process concern along the way. To, to me, it's leaning into those flavors. So like we did uh, a passion fruit uh, version of our all citra rings of light, passion fruit rings. 
but we only use it was maybe half a pound of passion fruit per uh, per gallon. So I mean, relatively light as far as fruit goes. But with uh, and we use the Berkeley Tropics strain, the London Tropics on that. It really uh, popped in in a great way, and and particularly in that sort of case where you're you could double the passion fruit, but that's going to be an extra thousand dollars or whatever it would right, be. Right. That's a, a case where it really, I think, doubled down on that flavor. We did a, a mango passion fruit sour, um, same with that strain the previous summer that really went over well. So to me, it's yeah, it's like, um, figuring out those synergies where you're using a hop again, like Galaxy Hydra. Um, I don't know if there are any other hops that are sort of in that sort of you know. Uh, fruit stripe gum, passion fruit. Now, there's more and more of the red fruit kind of yeah. hops out, but but sort of leaning into those flavors to me is the are the ones that really sort of pop rather than having say a different tropical flavor. Um, we used it with Simcoe, and to me, it just sort of ended up being kind of a little bit um, generic tropical. You know, it didn't have that great mango popsicle thing that some um, Simcoe IPAs sure. have. Sure, it didn't have the passion fruit sort of thing distinctly. It was just sort of pleasantly tropical, which is not right. what I'm excited about. I, I think um, I really like when you're, you know, sort of going in on one particular thing and really having that pop. You, you've mentioned Hydra twice now. <laughs> this is a hop that I had never heard about before I showed up here today. I don't know why this hasn't been on my radar, but, uh, but talk to me about this because whenever I hear something like that, it sounds interesting. I, I just need to learn more. And I'm sure people listening would love to learn more about that too. Not, not that you want to blow the secret because I don't know how much of it. It's already is. sold out. I is tried it? to get more this year. <laughs> the, the, the real issue for us is galaxy is fucking terrible. Just, Oh, he said it. <laughs> just, just, well, I mean, you know, we're the, all friends here. You can tell me how you really feel. The, the, the amount of galaxy that we have put into the kettle because it just tasted like peanut shells or it just did not have any, it had very little redeeming quality. Um, we'll order often. We, feel, I feel like we or three boxes of galaxy for every one we use for dry hop. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. It's more of like buying on spot from as many different lots as we possibly can <laughs> and then trying to request the ones we like, but that's not always even, um, and, and for a still a very expensive yeah. kind of shell game that you play there. Yeah. Peanut shell game. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man. I'm getting the jokes. And, in. and so we've, we've had good luck uh, with Michigan Hydra as a, a hop that has some of those similar notes, traits. Yeah. But we, with a lot lower uh, risk. Yeah. And it, it's, I think it's maybe even a little Michigan bit. Hydra. Yeah. Interesting. It's, uh, yeah. uh, uh, all right. Couple. I'm going to go do more research on this too and uh, <laughs> figure out what the story is. Because again, I had never heard about this before today when I showed up. And I probably, I think, I feel like I should have known more about this. Yeah. Well, I, that's just one of those, you know, always using, trying to keep the or, or experimental things going just to try yeah. new new varieties and stuff like that but it was definitely not on our radar either yeah I, no, I, I, I can't remember if they just sent us some samples or if we probably, you know yeah. yeah but it's and that's that's sort of the the issue being a, a commercial brewer is you sort of uh start liking hops they're more predictable and and um consistent and so you know the the mosaics and the symptoms, there, yeah. isn't it well it just it sucks to have particularly on a small scale and you Try and come up with a recipe, and you're trying to come up with labels, and you got a quick turnaround. And then you open a bag, and like we stopped using Amarillo because we kept getting oniony yeah. Amarillo. Yeah, and I, that, it, I think it's just you know we just got back from um, Washington doing selection with Yakima Chief, and I think um, it's it's amazing how different the different lots are of the same. Like, say you have four or five different varieties, um, or different lots of the same variety and it's unbelievable how unique they can be yeah. um, to each other. And so, I mean, you're playing that larger game on the spot um, yeah. without any sort of 
direction. So it's, um, it has been fascinating for me to hear that. And even, you know, I was, I was just talking to Tom Shellhammer earlier on the podcast this year, uh, with his terroir study and for, to be able to explain that the difference between mosaic and cascade, uh, grown in the same state could be as significant as the difference between, you know, cascade grown in two different states that, you know, even within that same variety, you know, it might as well be a different variety based on where, yeah. what that terroir is and what, you know, that different geography that's being grown in. Um, and so considering all of these things as one thing is probably silly, which is, you know, of course why, you know, New Zealand cascade now has its own brand yeah. uh, as it should, because it tastes completely different uh, when it's grown. That's, down. that's one of our favorite hot side hops too. We've been yep. getting a lot of like finding it cheap for like six or seven bucks a pound. Yeah. And again, you know, just, it's got that fun New Zealand thing. It's got moderate alpha acid. And that's and tahiki. Tahiki. Yeah, yeah. tahiki. Yeah. It seems like, yeah, those New Zealand hops just have that thing that carries through a yeah. little better. Sure. Um, sure. Terroir matters. Well, let's, let's pull out for, for a minute before we, uh, before we wrap up here, let's talk about what the big picture looks like. You know, you all are four years in now you've lived through a pandemic. Uh, I mean, we're still kind of living through the tail tail end of that pandemic now. Um, but what do you hope to achieve with Sapwood and, uh, you know, what would, what will success look like? Um, or have you achieved it already? You know, what do you, what do you hope to, to be here with Sapwood and when will you know when you've arrived there? Well, I think like the immediate future is pretty easy to, to talk about. We um, have plans to um, expand our tasting room. Um, we have a, a unique setup where we have a handful of sweets and then we don't have one in between. And then we have another separate sour suite where all the barrels are. And so um, we're getting that one in between us, which will allow us to really open up at a kitchen and just kind of be more of a, um, hopefully a place for beer lovers and just people that want to go out and have a meal and a beer. Right. And so that'll and, help. And probably a few more tanks just because at the moment we're still sort of doing some split batch kind of things where we take an IPA and then we divert half, half of it on a citrus and vanilla. And you're not always having exactly the, the right base. You know, we might go a little sweeter, a little lower bitterness, a little more citrusy on that. You know, if it was just for that, uh, citrus and vanilla. And so I think being able to do those things sort of more intentionally right. will be a big um, quality of life thing too for the brewers, not having to do more transfers, more flips, more whatever. But, but yeah, I think the long run, I mean, it's tricky. It's, you know, we go back and forth on different options and it's, it's hard to, to know um, how big you should get or, or how big you're comfortable getting and, um, you know, how you want to approach um, next steps. So for, for me, a, the distribution just never has held a huge amount yeah, of appeal. I agree. Um, just and but uh, you know those are the kinds of things you have to figure out. You know, is there a beer that you love that you're happy with that is you know the margins are right to do in large distribution format? Um, we really lean into I think our advantage, which is we're small and we can do really over the top dry hopping rates, and we can have super duper fresh beer because we are selling it directly over the bar or in cans to go from the tasting room, versus having to worry about a cut, a cut, a cut, you know, down the line and still have a profitable beer. Um, I don't want to be one of those breweries that is designed for distribution and then kind of that's what you get at the tasting room. There's nothing special, nothing unique, right, nothing interesting. Right. Um, and, you know, sort of we've always focused on, you know, sort of the higher margin things. So, we, you know, a lot we've leaned into the imperial stouts and the bourbon barrel aging and the coconut and vanilla and macadamia nuts and whatever else. And the barrel-aged sours, I think, are probably probably as big as it's going to get at this point, the way things <laughs> sure. are going. You're at peak sour right now. Yeah. Huh? But honestly, like that, again, allows us that sort of flexibility sure, sure. to do foraged ingredients and to do right. wild right. capture and to do those the the things that I'm excited about right. for sour beer. You can focus on quality rather than having to lean on scale for yeah. that kind of thing. 
sure. exactly sure makes plenty of sense well, I think that's a great place to wrap this up. For nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the market for quality equipment you can rely on. NA is no problem with the Alchemator from ProBrew. Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate blends mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter for brewers across the country and craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. As always, if you enjoy the content that we create, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Let us know this content matters to you. And of course, if you'd like to learn more from both Scott and Mike in separate classes on separate <laughs> subjects, Scott on hops and Mike on brewing with fruit, become an all access subscriber to craft beer and brewing. And those classes are forthcoming and they are going, they're just going to be amazing. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with everybody. They're going to be amazing. Um, you know, if you are a craft beer and brewing fan, we're about a couple weeks away from our annual best in beer issue. And that is always a highlight of our year should be a highlight of yours. I'm getting excited about it because it's on my podcast calendar in a couple weeks. I'm like, that's a big one. So pay attention to that. Uh, keep listening. Uh, keep a lookout for that. The issue is done. It's at the printer. Uh, we, we shipped it off last week. And uh, so somebody knows, but they're all at, uh, at the printer. Please nobody blow the roof off of that one yet. Nonetheless, beerandbring.com. Subscribe. Uh, make sure you don't miss out on all of this because it's all coming. Um, Scott and Mike, if you want to learn more about Sapwood Cellars, where, where can they go find out more about you all? You can sign up at uh, sapwoodcellars.com for our email uh, newsletter, which I write almost exclusively. So if uh, you miss A Matt. free for email newsletter from the legendary Mike Consmere? <laughs> oh, my if, gosh. If you, if you miss my uh, blog posts that uh, has, hasn't been updated in two years, that's where all my writing efforts go. <laughs> I, I can't blame you. Every brewery should operate their own email list. Uh, I, I mean, we are... Obviously, anyone who subscribes to our emails knows just how many emails that we send to people. Uh, and we, we lean in heavily on that. Uh, but partially that's because uh, social media is a you know giant pit of despair. Cut, cut out Zuckerberg. Exactly. <laughs> uh, why would I want to create free content so that Zuckerberg can sell ads against it? Why would I do that? Why would, you sell I mean, your own ads. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what helps pay us so we can go do these things. Can we sell our own ads? Have it's a business. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thank you all. Thank you all for joining me for the podcast. It's been great to talk to you all. And uh, it's been also great to film some classes today. Cheers. Yeah, Thanks cheers. for having us. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.